Tonight, call it Wall Street whiplash. Historically, the patient investor has been rewarded, but is it different maybe this time? You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. It's really easy to say it, right? This time feels different. The headlines are scarier, but the inflation, but the Fed, but the war in Ukraine, there's a lot of buts out there. And all of them, I think, could be pushing some investors toward making maybe a rash decision when it comes to your investments. The, the four most dangerous words in the English language, this time is different. Exactly, which is why we bring in our chief investment officer, Andy Stout, this time every Monday, because his insight right he's watching these things like a hawk uh, to make sure that we truly understand uh, and dig beneath the headlines to how it truly impacts us uh, and Andy last week of course the news from the Federal Reserve our nation central bank was half point hike uh, not really anything surprising there um, let's talk about the, the tone from the Fed and, and markets reaction well, the markets loved it. I mean, if you look at what happened on Wednesday, you saw the Dow Jones uh, in, index rally 932 points. They really liked what Chair Powell said, even though the Fed did a half point hike, which is different than what they normally do, which is a quarter point hike or 0.25%. That half point hike, by the way, Amy, was the first half point hike since the year 2000. Yeah. So they've been pretty uh, more steady and a measured approach in the past. But, you know, we're dealing with inflation like we haven't seen in quite some time. So they went a half point. But why the markets loved it, though, is that there was some concern that the Fed would get even more aggressive in the future, possibly doing a three quarter of a point hike. And Chair Powell, uh, Jerome Powell, said those aren't even being considered right now. And he did say more half point hikes are on the table and that's what actually the market is, is pricing in when you look at where things are trading. So the next time the Fed meets is June 15th, they're expecting uh, to, the, the market's expecting them to hike by a half a point and then do another half point hike on July 27th. Well, the market liked the news on Wednesday, but by Thursday, that was old news. Not so much. <laughs> and, and things, I mean, it was no gone. No kidding. That, that, that 900 and whatever point gain was gone in the first 90 minutes of Thursday's trading. What happened? I, I mean, why such a turnaround? What, what went from so good to so bad in such a – why did it go uh, turnaround in such a short period of time? Well, there's a lot of – I'll call them interrelated issues. And I think a lot of it just comes down to the market trying to digest what the Federal Reserve's ultimate path is. I mean, they, the Fed has increased their what's called hawkishness throughout the year, meaning how strongly they're going to fight inflation through rate hikes. Yeah. Uh, so we've seen inflation elevated. If we just look at the, you know how this year's kind of progressed when I'm thinking about interrelated issues, is that uh, the market's coming to grips with what the Fed is doing, becoming more hawkish throughout the year. Remember, they started the year with expecting three quarter point rate hikes. We've already had that much done this year so far. They're expecting a lot more uh, throughout the year. So the hawkishness has increased throughout the year because inflation has remained more elevated. It was expected to roll over, but then Russia, they invaded Ukraine and that's causing some uh, more supply chain problems as well as higher energy prices. And then China, they're sticking to their zero tolerance COVID policy, which is also having supply chain issues and inf affecting inflation. So that higher inflation coupled with the Fed raising interest rates, the concern is that affects consumer demand, which could slow down uh, economic growth. And that slower economic growth combined with higher inflation could affect corporate profits in terms of 
fewer sales, but also squeezing margins. So there's just a lot to digest. And we're this, in this period right now, Steve, uh, to where there's uncertainty out there and the market doesn't like uncertainty. That's when you see these wild swings. You're listening to Simply Money tonight here on 55KRC, making sense, trying to make sense of the market volatility, the the Wall Street whiplash, I think, that we're all feeling every time we check our 401ks or the markets right now. Andy Stout, our chief investment officer, joining us to make sense of it. Andy, you mentioned earnings, right, which is the, the number one question. And of course, we don't know the moves by the Federal Reserve that they're making now, how that will affect future earnings. But let's talk about the earnings reporting that we're seeing so far. Yeah, if you look at how the uh, earnings season has gone, it's been pretty good, really. I mean, we're almost done with earnings seasons. Uh, We've had about 88% of the S&P 500, which is your largest uh, 500 companies in the uh, on the stock exchange report profits. And the the results are pretty good when we look at it. I mean, the total growth has been 9.3% when you look at bottom line earnings. Uh, what analysts was, were expecting at the beginning of earnings season was 5.2%. So we've seen some good year over year earnings growth. And when we think about the number of the companies that reported of those, 79% have reported better than expected earnings. Similar story on the sales side where the year-over-year growth is 12.9% and Wall Street was expecting 10.5%. So we're seeing better uh, beat rates on growth on both earnings and profits. However, you know, and this is the, the problem, is that margins are being pinched because of inflation. So that's a little bit of concern. And we've seen some big misses on the tech side, like Amazon as an example. Uh, so those big misses on the tech side have really cast a shadow on the entire earnings season overall. But aggregate picture looks good, but we got a big shadow from the tech side of the world. So so earnings are okay. The economy's okay. Um, but yet the stock market has, has taken a beating. So, you know, normally you look at bonds. Okay, let, let's think about shifting money from stocks into bonds. They'll protect us. But they just got through their first quarter. Uh, that was the worst. The first quarter of this year was the worst quarter for bonds since 1980. So, you know, I, I, I guess my, my question is, what's an investor to do if stocks are weak and bonds are weak? What should the average person be hearing out there? Well, honestly, they need to be patient, and I'll back this up with some data as to why the average person should be patient when it comes to bonds. There have been, I mean, we had a negative year last year in bonds as well. Uh, And when you look at the history of bonds, I'm going back to 1976, that's when the, the the major bond index uh, actually started. There had been, let's exclude last year, only three other years where bonds generated negative returns. That was 1994 when they fell 2.9%, 1999 when they fell 0.8%, and 2013 when they fell to uh, 0.02%. When we look at the next year following that, returns were really strong. So 94, remember, we fell almost 3%. Yeah. There was a recovery of 18.5% on bonds. 1999, bonds fell 0.8%. The year 2000, they were up 11.6%. 2013, when bonds were down 2%, well, what happened in 2014 is they were up uh, 5.97%. So what you see is 
I don't, I won't call it a reversion to the mean, but it's more like if it goes down, it's going to balance up and it often balances up higher. So we'll probably have a negative year in bonds this year uh, just because of, you know, the sell off that's already sure. happened. But if we look at like from this point on history, history would suggest you would see a strong rally. And yeah, I think there's, yeah, a lot of people who are saying, okay, really, there's no alternative at this point, right? And when you look at the, the stock market and you're like, ah, oh, I'm just nervous about it. Gold, no. Bonds, no, not right now. Uh, so I think that's a good reminder for investors. You know, last week when I was looking at so many of the headlines that were coming through in the wake of the Federal Reserve's decision and then up and down and down and down and up and all over the place, uh, there was a lot of people who were saying, hey, let's wait and see what the jobs report says on Friday, because that will tell us a lot about the health of the economy, how we're doing. Uh, and it ended up kind of being a mixed jobs report. Will you dig into that for us? Yeah. So when we saw the jobs report, initial glance, hey, this looks really good. Uh, but when we dig under the hood, it's like, well, part of it looks good. Part of it, not so much. So just to maybe level set how what the government does is they actually do two surveys. They do a survey to individual people where they call them up on the phone and talk to them, ask them how things are going. They also do the same thing to businesses. That's called the establishment survey. So for the business survey, they're asking how many jobs were added, how many jobs, new hires did you have? And that's where we saw some pretty good numbers uh, last week when there was 428,000 new jobs added. And what market or what economists were forecasting uh, they were forecasting a 380,000 gain so that was a, a pretty good uh, from from that perspective uh, now the other side the household survey that wasn't as strong so if you look at the headline it showed the unemployment rate remained at 3.6 percent like okay well that seems good but it remained there for the wrong reason specifically 363,000 people dropped out of the labor force so they stopped looking for jobs and that brought down the unemployed people because those unemployed people just stopped looking for jobs altogether. Uh, so it remained at that level for the wrong reasons. Uh, and w one thing you might've heard a lot out there, Amy, is like the labor force participation rate. So it fell from 62.4 to 62.2%. Uh, so that's how many people, the percent of the labor force that's uh, looking for a job and or, or in the job market overall. So economists were actually thinking that would increase. They thought more people would step into the market because guess what? We have 11.5 million job openings. Uh, so, and the quit rate's actually near a record level as well, where 3% of people uh, are quitting, at least on an annualized basis. So people are leaving their jobs, probably looking for maybe a higher paying job possibly. But overall, uh, what this picture shows us from the job market is that we ha still have a pretty strong job market, a tight labor market, and that should help the economy weather any sort of uh, uh, soft patches ahead. I, Andy, I think all the negative issues are, are all relating back to inflation. And, and, you know, can we get control over inflation? Um, yet I'm starting to see some cracks out there. I, I'm seeing shipping costs are down a little bit. I'm seeing inventory increased on used cars. Um, maybe supply chain issues are slowly being resolved. I, have we seen peak inflation? Is there any reason for optimism? Yeah, I, I think we have seen peak inflation. So if you look at just the main inflation number that the you see in the news a lot, CPI, or it's a consumer price index, is what you know consumers are paying for things. It came in at eight point five percent for the month of March. Uh, on this sometime this week, I think it's Wednesday, we're going to get the April reading, and that's expected to come down to eight point one percent. So. Nice. 
yeah, we're seeing it come down. And the other good thing that we're expecting to see there uh, when we get this report is that the month over month change is really going to slow down a lot. So from February to March, inflation increased 1.2%. That's a big number, by the way, for a month. Yeah. Uh, now it's expected to go from March to April of just 0.2%. So it's not that we're seeing prices come down, but we're seeing that growth rate slow. So 8.1% year over year is what we're looking for. Wouldn't it be shocked at all if we have around a 7.8 or something oh, like that, that yeah. in the month of May? Now, a lot of that will depend on where energy prices are trading. Uh, but when you look at it, the big picture, I wouldn't be shocked at all if we have a seven handle for the end of this month. So progress in the right direction, which we will absolutely. take. We will yes. absolutely take that. Here's a Simply Money point. Markets go up, markets go down. History, though, shows the long-term investor is rewarded for just hanging in there. There's a lot of volatility out there, without a doubt, a lot of scary headlines. You know, it is our job, of course, to always look under the hood when the market is as volatile as we've been seeing recently. Next, Delving into stocks specifically, putting some of these wild swings into context for you. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Strovac. We talk about this market volatility so much right now, but if you're getting close to retirement, uh, it is no laughing matter, right? It's becoming super serious to you. If this is you, we've got retirement workshops, especially for you on May 19th and 21st, Retirement Risk. We'll be talking about what's going on right now with inflation and everything else. Free, one hour, in person. Just go to allworthfinancial.com to get more information and register. Straight ahead at 643, we're helping those who might be scared to spend their money in retirement. That might sound crazy to you. It actually happens all the time. Millions of Americans are getting 4% interest right now, Steve, not in the savings account, not in a money market <laughs> account, from the IRS. Yeah, just because of general incompetence. I, I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> the, the IRS has 45 days to send you your money if you if you're due a refund, and any day over 45 days, it starts compounding at 4% annual interest. Well, guess what? They've got 9.6 million unprocessed returns, many of which go back to 2020. Mine is one of them. I'm still one of waiting which on is money. yours. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the estimate is they are expecting to pay out $3.3 billion in interest payments, again, due to their own incompetence. I, I mean, it, it just boggles my mind. I get government waste. It's going to happen with any large bu bureaucracy, but because they just can't process and get the returns back, get the refunds back to people, they're going to blow $3.3 billion. And it's not government money. It's your money. It's my money. It's our tax money. It's so it's frustrating. There, There's no organization uh, it, ever, like, ever like just scratch my head constantly, like really triple, right, how far behind they were yeah. in 2015. And again, there have been a lot of budget cutbacks. And I think the IRS processed so much of the stimulus money and things like yeah, that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's like there's one person taking calls for every, I don't know, 500,000 calls that come yeah, it in. That it way. just doesn't make sense to me. And I was thinking about this today. I'm like, okay, if you owe the IRS, right, you and you haven't paid or what, you're, 4% is what you're going to have yeah, to pay. That's pay. also yeah. on the flip side, how much they're going to pay you if they're overdue 45 days. Is that really the, like an incentive to like get employed? Like if I was an employee of the IRS, are they like, oh, we got to get this money out because we're <laughs> wasting taxpayers money? They don't care. Uh, no, no. I, I just, I just, 
in my mind at least picture this like just super um you know like oh like soul-sucking processing of the IRS forms, the tax filing forms, and like, whatever. <laughs> hey, know, Amy, just... let, let me ask you this. If you were running a company, if, if you were like, not not the owner, but the person that reported to the owner, you're in charge of this company, and you said, ah, yeah, we're going to pay $3.3 billion. Our people just, they couldn't get around to it in time, and those yeah. are the penalties. Sorry about that. What do you think the owner, what do you think your boss would do? You think you'd be called on the carpet? You think? I think it's a great point, right? And it just goes to show about just the government waste versus like yeah. an actual corporation, like you know, uh, that no business would run this way. Yet here we are, and if the IRS owes you money, well, they will owe you more money than is actually on the form because that's four percent that they're adding onto there. Yeah, it, it's again. I don't mind earning four percent. I suppose I can wait on on my refund for that. But you know, it's just one more example of no accountability. And, and you know, they were called be, before Congress, and and the response was basically, well, you know, you can't just look at one item. It's really the big picture. I'm sorry. Somebody needs to be called on the carpet over this. Somebody needs to be canned. Three point three billion dollars. Ridiculous. They moved. They moved one of their processing centers. Uh, I think it was from Kansas City to Utah because they felt they can get better work done, more work done. They moved a processing center where they had to hire 5,000 people into an area with 0.6% unemployment. Everybody's already working, and they can't get over why they can't find people. Why didn't that work out? Didn't they Hmm. think of this ahead of time? I, I, I just don't get it. Sorry. You've probably seen these headlines. I certainly have in the past few days, past few weeks. Dow tumbles, worst day of the year for stocks. This is Wall Street whiplash. I don't think there's any better way to put it. The problem is those of you who reacted to those headlines, right? So we just want to dig deeper tonight and just educate you a little more beyond just the clickbait of these headlines, what you really need to know. First of all, market volatility is a normal part of the market cycle. Yeah, in, in the average year, the market drops from its high that year to its low that year. I'm not saying we're finished, but from the high to the low, 14%. Yeah. 14% happens every year. And, and, you know, that's why I don't get upset over big swings. I wish they didn't happen, but it's kind of the price to admission. I'll tell you something else. When I started in the business in, in the uh, early 80s, the Dow was right around 1,000. So a 10-point drop was a big deal. It was 1%. Now people get upset. Wow, these 300-point drops seem huge. Guess what? That's a one-point drop. It's the same as a 10-point drop was in the early 80s. So, you know, be aware of it, but it's not necessarily huge volatility to see a couple hundred points. The headlines will always talk about the points. It's exactly what we saw last Thursday, right, when the market started reacting to whatever new news they thought they had about the Federal Reserve. You know, Dow down 900 points, Dow races, everything. It's percentages. What percentage is the Dow down? And speaking of the Dow, the Dow's only made up of 30 individual stocks. Yeah. yeah. Yet, yet it's quoted so much because it has the most volatility, right? Usually when it it's swings. It's the market. The market's the S- up. And, yes. 30 stocks. Uh, if you're going to talk about the market, well, let's talk about the S&P 500. That's yeah. 500 companies versus the 30 companies that make up the Dow or the NASDAQ companies, right? All the tech companies that make up the NASDAQ. Uh, so if we're looking at markets specifically, I would say, hey, look at the S&P 500. Yeah, and, and I, I don't know why that hasn't caught on, but when you know when we hear about the market, it's those 30 stocks. You might have a well-diversified portfolio that doesn't include any of those 30, and, and ha- what the Dow does has no bearing on your money. So just be aware of it. But the S&P 500, yeah, it, that's, that's a little bit closer to what you probably own. 
Here's the Simply Money point. History tells us owning stocks is a good thing, right? Long-term investors, they're always rewarded as long as they're part of a well-diversified portfolio. How secure is your Apple Pay if you use that? The answer from fraudsters. That's next. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. You know, there are so many ways that scammers are trying to get to you that I feel like if I have multi-factor authentication in place, I am good, right? I am I am protected. Joining us tonight, though, is our tech expert, Dave Hatter from Intrust IT with a warning. And Dave, you're telling me I'm taking these extra steps, right? Two-factor authentication, and it still might not be enough that scammers might still be able to get to my information? Unfortunately, Amy, that is correct. Ugh. First off, you know, as always, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So I want to be clear. You know, the advice for multi-factor authentication, sometimes called two-step verification or two-factor authentication, from everyone out there is you got to have it. Yeah. Microsoft, Google, DHS, FBI, you know, they've all, all said you need multi-factor authentication. But the, the angle here, this came out of a story where they're warning about using Apple Pay and how uh, hackers will attempt to to defraud you through it. it. In my mind, it's less about the Apple Pay, right? And Samsung's got a thing. And there's there's all these cool new ways you can pay. Now, you know me, Amy, tinfo hat guy that I am. I bet you can guess <laughs> that I don't use any of these things. Okay. Um, but, but it's not, again, because of any necessarily inherent weakness in these things. They're all kind of new and immature. The key point that I got out of this article is the bad guys want to steal your money. So when people say, I don't have anything worth stealing, the information they can steal from you can eventually lead to your money. Or in a case like this, they get right at your money. And one of the ways they're defeating multi-factor authentication is through social engineering. This isn't necessarily a technology attack per se. It's, okay, we get... We go out on the dark web and we buy a giant dump of data, maybe credit cards that has other information. This is why you want to protect all your information, your name, your phone number, you know, stuff that I could use to impersonate you to someone else or use to fool you into thinking I'm someone you have a relationship with, like your bank. So your your account gets, you know, the bad guys get a hold of your credit card, let's say, and then you get a call that appears to be from a bank, maybe your bank. I can't stress enough how easy it is for the bad guys to spoof a phone number or an email address so that mm -hmm. it looks like a legitimate number. You get a call from a bot, some software that's just making these calls, claims to be a bank. Again, from a phishing standpoint, might be your bank. And they say, oh, your account has fraud. Um, and we need you to give us the two-factor authentication code or multi-factor authentication code so that we can you know, do X, Y, or Z. So you're getting a call from something that might say Fifth Third Bank or U.S. Bank or whatever. Um, you know, it's saying something that sounds legitimate. This is going to be especially effective, obviously, if you're a customer of one of those banks. They're trying to log into your account. They need that code, right? Code gets sent to your phone number. That's what's on file. And this is another reason why it's better to use an authenticator app than text for MFA. You read that code off to them, boom, they're in. So 
And you know, David, you talk about this. I can see how easily it would be to how easy it would be to fall for this because if you think you have been hacked already, right? And you're and you think someone has access to something, you immediately want to shut that down. So you're probably not even thinking, right? What can I do? What can I give you? How can we solve this problem so that no more damage is done? And then you're actually turning over the very information that does the damage. I think you're exactly right, Amy. You know, one of the one of the angles with social engineering, which has been around forever, you know, phishing relies on it, smishing relies on it, is to convince you that something bad has happened and you need to take some immediate action, catch you off guard, get you acting before you've had a chance to really think through it, right? So that, I think that's a big part of it. You're exactly right there. And then again, I just want to remind people, it's very easy for the bad guys to send a text or make a call from a number that appears to be a different number than the number they're calling from, perhaps, again, a number that might be from a bank. The spoofing part of this, when you couple it with the social engineering and the fact that most people aren't thinking, gosh, I've actually got something calling me. Now, it's automated or could be a human being. In some cases, you know, they have call centers overseas with people doing nothing but trying to scam. But you get a call yeah, you've heard you've heard the tinfo hack guys like me talk about email and all this stuff. Now they're calling you. They tell you they need that code to stop some kind of fraud or something. You give it up before you really realize what's happened, and you got a huge problem on your hands. And again, I would also just reiterate: so, in terms of what you can do about this, use an authenticator app like Authy or the Google Authenticator or the Microsoft Authenticator app, so that that code, rather than being texted to you is coming to an app on your phone. That's gonna take you a little more time to get into that, mm-hmm. slow you down a little bit, make you think about it a little harder. It's also much harder to actually hack the app than it is to get that text, even through an attack like this. And then secondarily, you know, just assume anything you get, anything you get is strong likelihood it's fake, go out of band. If a bank calls you and tells you there's fraud detected, okay, fine. Ignore the call, ignore the text, ignore the email, go to that bank's website, assuming it's your bank. If it's not your bank, then you know it's a scam, right? Mm -hmm. Go to the website on your own, get a number off your bill, off that website, from an email you've had with a known person at that bank, and call them up and say, hey, I got this call, I got this email, whatever. And, you know, is this legit? Don't ever give anyone your password and or one of these multi-factor authentication codes because it, it may be them trying to get around the system and you know you could wake up to your bank account totally drained. What I'm hearing you saying too is, hey, put some steps in place, right? So you have to be intentional. You have to take some time. You have to think through exactly what's going on and, and, and anything, right? Anything that you've put in place. And unfortunately, these darn scammers are always innovating new ways to scam you. So yeah, I think it's easily to, easy to say, oh, I've got multi-factor authentication. I'm protected. And then easily hand over your code. And you're, Dave, saying take some steps in order to um, have to think through these things before you would ever hand any information over in fact don't hand it over yeah don't don't hand it over until you have on your own through a different channel entirely verified that it's legit and yeah to your point amy you know while that friction in your daily life gets aggravating at the end of the day if if you have to slow down there's kind of a common mantra out there in the cybersecurity space stop think protect right stop Think about what you're being asked to do and err on the side of protection, which I think is really good advice. Moving slower will generally help you avoid these kind of things. And again, going out of band, guaranteeing that something is legitimate before you act on it. 
always the best advice because as you said, these people are they're very creative. They're constantly changing their tactics and they want to steal your money. If someone can, you know, get into your account and, and steal five grand, that's a pretty good hit for, you know, a few minutes worth of work. I think ultimately, uh, Dave and you are obviously on the show regularly with these warnings about how we need to protect ourselves, but it's almost trust no one and verify separately, do the research yourself before you ever give anyone information. Now, Amy, you know, I'm a tinfoil hat guy, but that's my advice. Trust nothing, verify everything. That's just unfortunately where we're at today. And if you take that approach, while nothing is foolproof, you are going to be immensely harder to scam. And in most cases, the bad guys are going to move on to a softer target. I mean, that's really what MFA is all about. It makes it much harder to hack you. In many cases, they'll just move along. But then with some of these new tactics like call centers that can dial thousands of numbers, you pick up the phone, they tell you some scam, they ask for a code, you give it to them. You know, they make it easy to automate these things. So yeah, you have to be extremely vigilant And I suggest that you trust nothing that you can't absolutely verify. So to be clear, right, multi-factor authentication, still a very good thing, still doing everything it can to protect you, but you also have to make sure you're taking the additional steps not to give that information out because scammers have found yet a way around this, right? Apple Pay, an easy thing for them to get into, and and, and everything else will probably follow in short order. Great advice, as always, from our tech expert, Dave Hatter, from Intrust IT on how to protect yourself. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner, along with Steve Sprovac. Straight ahead, thinking of doing some home renovating, we're going to look at the projects you want to pursue to get your money back. That's next. You know, Steve, it's so interesting. People talk about retiring. They they picture it, right? They dream about it. And we have seen many, many times people get there and they just can't flip the switch. Oh, it's amazing. They they can't go from saving to actually spending down the money in retirement. It's actually really scary for them. Well, and and I get that. You know, if you've been working hard since you were, you know, in most cases, 15, 16, 17 years old, um, and you've accumulated enough money to be able to start thinking about retirement, well, you didn't get to retirement being a spender. You, you, you're you a good saver, you know, and, and you're yeah. concerned and you're responsible and, and, and you look at everything you're supposed to look at, you analyze everything. You don't change from being a saver to a spender, certainly not overnight and in most cases ever. One of my favorite stories about someone that has has worked with us at Allworth uh, is the the person who uh, had just saved and saved and saved, and in their big thing in retirement was they were going to take this trip, right? This yeah. man and this wife. And one of our advisors was like, "Hey, uh, you can afford to go first class." What? First class? I've never flown first class in my life, right? So they fly first class, and then they start flying first class, yeah, kind of good for them, somewhat normally, yeah. yeah. And then a few years later, right, they come back to the advisor and they say, uh, "Hey, we're going to take the whole family on a trip." And the advisor's thinking, "Oh, they're going to say they want to fly everyone first class." Now they want to charter a plane, and we had to rein them. <laughs> we had to rein them back in, like, "Hey, wait a second, first class is not the same as chartering an airplane." But I think there's a there's a lot of you out. 
out there that think, hey, I'm, I'm going to have no problem when I get to retirement in, in spending down this yeah. money. But when that paycheck isn't coming in, and let's face it, we've been hardwired since the day we started working uh, to expect that paycheck. And I just think it's a very mental thing that you can't underestimate the impact of when you get there. Yeah, and and I think, you know, some people are concerned and, and you know, I, I don't think I'm one of them, but about leaving a lot of money to their kids. Yeah. You know, and that, that's, that's I get that, and, and that's a great goal to have. But, you know, I wonder how many times if you ask your kids, hey, by the way, I don't want to take this trip. That way I'll be able to leave you more money when I'm gone. I think pretty much every kid out there is going to say, Mom, Dad, would you enjoy your money? We'll yes. be fine. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I mean, when I do plans for... Um, you know, adults, but with, with you know, aging parents, um, almost to a T, they all say, you know what, I'm going to be inheriting a decent amount of money, but don't put that in my plan. I don't want to plan on that. And I hope they start enjoying it a little bit more. I don't ne- even want to know that that money exists. And and that's the way most kids are. And I, I think that's the way you want to be. Yeah. And But most parents don't feel that way. They want to leave the house to their kids. They want to leave a lot of money. It's like enjoy life a little bit. Life is for living. Money's a tool. Money's a tool to allow that, not the reason for being. And I think there are strategies for approaching this where you can overcome it, right? If you just sure. earmark, right, the money that you need for your everyday expenses, but then also earmark some discretionary spending every year, right? It's it's sitting there. And it's not anything that you need to rely on. It's not anything that you're going to go broke if you use, but that money is sitting there. Earmarked yeah. for you to do, okay, you can spend it on the grandkids, you can travel, you can play golf, you can do whatever. But if that money's setting aside and you know it's okay and it's there for that and it's not going to impact anything else in your plan if you use that money. I think that's one way of maybe approaching this where you can kind of get over that mental hurdle. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I do this during the working years and I'm sure I'll do it in the retirement years. I, I like to segregate money. Uh, you yeah. know, here's here's how much I'm gonna use for travel this year. Here's how much I'm gonna use for this, maybe buying a car as a goal, you know, and, and you can do that in retirement also. You can actually do that for retirement before you retire if you work with an investment advisor and have a financial plan drawn. I mean, I, I many times I'll run a plan for somebody and I'll say, yeah, but you haven't put any money away for travel. Well, do you plan on traveling? Well, yeah, yeah, but I, you know, I don't know how much that'll be. Okay, let me do this for you. I'm going to put $10,000 away for the next 20 years from the date of your retirement for travel. And I'm calling it travel, but let's just call it a slush fund. It could be for anything you want. Mm-hmm. Can you afford to spend $10,000 more than you think you're going to be spending and does it blow up your plan. When when you show a person that they can spend $10,000 more than they've gone through and check their budgeting and uh, they don't run out of money and everything's fine and they can absorb another $10,000 of spending for any purpose, that's when you start seeing them free up because really most people, their their biggest concern is not running out. And if I take that trip, I might run out of money because I don't know what's going to happen since I didn't include that in my calculations when I was getting ready for re- for for retiring. It is so important to be able to stress test how much your spending is and include some extra for just enjoyment. And ask yourself, what do you really value, right? What's really important to you in retirement? And I think a lot of you might answer, rather than owning things, you want to be a builder or a keeper of memories, right? And I think that's what becomes the shift to the most important thing. And then, okay, if that's what I value, well, that's where my money's going to go. That's what I'm going to spend time on. So maybe I'm going to cut back on all the clothes that I buy or all the furniture or whatever it is, and I'm going to prioritize making memories with my family, making memories with 
my spouse. Uh, and that becomes what you spend the money on. I think once you just think about it that way, it becomes so much easier. Here's the Simply Money point. If you've done the planning and the saving, well, don't stress. You've set the stage for what could be the best years of your life. Next, Home renovations that will pay you back in the long run. Where should you really be spending that money? You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Strovac. You know, I think a lot of people, Steve, working from home nowadays or maybe the hybrid schedule, spending more time at home and you just get tired of the kitchen that drives you crazy or the bathroom that, you know, needs to be remodeled because whatever the tile is pink or, you know, name what it is. You want to do some renovations, but, you know, this is a money show. and We're going to tell you, OK, which ones can you get the best bang for your buck with? Well, and and I, I, I struggle over segments like this because, you know, we never see 110 percent, 120. 20% return on no. investment, you know, and, and to me, it's like, why would you put money into making your house the way you always wanted it just so you can get rid of it, just so you can sell it? I, I mean, but, you know, there are certain things that you, you can remodel that you will get, a, a, you know, much better look at uh, from a lot of uh, additional buyers and you'll you'll get a decent amount of, of that money back. And I think that just becomes the secondary consideration, right? If you're going to do the upgrades, you do it for yourself. But keeping in mind how much of that can you recoup, uh, remodeling the kitchen, remodeling bathrooms, both yeah. of those, you're going to get back about 65% of your investment on average. There's some statistics from Home Advisor, and I actually laugh at these because I think they're super low. The average bathroom remodel, they say about 6,500 to 16,000. A kitchen remodel, about 135 to 40,000. And I'll put I'll I'll throw the flag on that one. Yes. It's easy to spend sixty or eighty thousand on a kitchen remodel. So and I think there's some easy things you can do, right? Paint cabinets, change pools. Yeah. That can that can yeah. change the entire look of a kitchen or a bathroom relatively easily, right? And then you're not out so much. So if you're thinking about moving in the next couple of years, I would start looking at those quick, easy fixes that have a lot of bang for the buck, a lot of impact. An outdoor deck, uh, you can get maybe 70% of that recouped. Outdoor living spaces have become much more kind of important to people, I think, lately. Yeah, and we, we did that on, on our old house. We, we did pavers. And pavers can be a do-it-yourself project yeah. if you have help. And I had help until the pavers were two weeks delayed getting to me, uh, and the kid had to go back to college. I mm. lost my cheap labor. There is <laughs> there is nothing more fun than putting out about five tons of brick pavers all by yourself. Yeah, you'll be a little sore. Upgrading light fixtures. And here's where I would say, hey, shop around for these. When we were moving into our new house, there were certain light fixtures I know I wanted. There was one I remember at a high-end store was like $2,500. I was like, absolutely not. Found mm -hmm. almost exactly the same thing at Menards for a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. So you almost like shop everywhere, figure out what you like, and then then you kind of narrow it down to the affordable places. Um, an entry door, though, when you look at curb appeal, right, just for the resale value, that can be huge. Um, a, a retail or the entry door can actually boost your home's value by a pretty large amount. It can make a huge difference, but, you know, you might spend... A thousand, you can easily spend five thousand on an entry door. So be smart about how much you spend on things like this. I think the key with all these renovations are to think: okay, what are we doing for ourselves, and also what's the impact long term? Right, that becomes yep. secondary, but still part of the conversation, part of the consideration. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55 KRC, the talk station.